Welcome back to another episode of the Daily Emerald Sports Desk Report. This is episode 10, and it's going to be our last one for a little bit because we're going on winter break. We got a, a, a big doc for you guys today because women's volleyball is about to start their NCAA tournament run. Uh, women's basketball and men's basketball seasons are, are just getting started. They're about to hit Pac-12 play, and the football season is, is wrapping up. So we got all that today for you guys. Um, we're going to start with the volleyball team. They are hosting a regional, and this is the first time they're hosting a regional in a, in a, in a little while. Um, we got Nina here to talk about the team. Just what have you been seeing as they are going into this NCAA tournament run, Nina? Yeah, so they're just coming off of a 13-straight winning streak. Um, they stayed undefeated at home the entire season, so and they had two reverse sweeps at home last week to end the season. So they're off of like an adrenaline rush right now. Mimi Collier broke her own record in the same season. Uh, she had 25 kills in one game and then broke it against USC to have 29. Um, and she was just named Pac-12 Freshman of the Year. So the team is like full of adrenaline right now and they're ready to get started. Yeah, so how is her contribution in helping out the team, especially like I know you want to write a feature story on her. What are some things that interest you about her? Um, so one of the biggest things that made me want to write this feature story is the difference between her and Brooke Nunaviller and just the way that they approach the game. Brooke is very like animated and energetic and Mimi's very to herself. I read an article about Brooke recently talking about that and what Brooke said and she's like it's very different. It's it's weird going to talk to somebody who like is at the same level as you, three years younger than you, and doesn't really have much emotion, doesn't show anything on her face. Whereas like I said, her, she's very energetic, very excited, very like you can read everything that she's thinking on her face. Um, so I think having Mimi on the team I think it's an advantage for the Ducks because opponents can't tell what she's thinking. Um, so I think it's going to be helpful going into the playoffs because they've seen Brooke Nunaviller, but they haven't seen Mimi yet. Yeah, it's a contrast that, you know, not a lot of teams prepared for. So let's get into the, the, those playoff games. Um, so along with Oregon's game against LMU, Loyola Marymount from uh, Los Angeles, two other teams will be playing around one game in uh, Austin State. Sorry, not Austin Stadium, in Matthew Knight Arena. Um, we have Arkansas and Utah State. So why don't you just give us a rundown of first Loyal Marymount and then those other two teams that Oregon could see uh, in the second round. Yeah, so this will be like the the, the Lions' 15th appearance overall in the tournament. Um, it's their second under their new head coach. Um, but they're bringing a very young team to Eugene. Um, they have two players who made the all-WCC team, but they're both freshmen. Um, they led the teams in kills and blocks. Um, but again, it's still very young. They're still brand new. They play very strategically. Um, they have huge opponents in their league, such as BYU and San Diego State. And San Diego State pretty much cleaned all awards um, in the WCC. Um, so they, like I said, they play very strategically. So a lot of dumps over the net, a lot of strong kill placements. And they're, you could just tell their IQ is very high. Um, so I think the Ducks will have to prepare in that way because they haven't really faced those type of teams in a while. Mm -hmm. and, and what about uh, the other two that, you know, if Oregon wins, that they'll face them in the, in the next round. Yeah, so both Utah State and Arkansas are making their first appearance in the tournament in a long time. Um, it's only Utah State's fifth appearance, and after nine years, Arkansas is now coming back. Um, so I think that can be an advantage for the Ducks because you're going to deal with nerves naturally and just trying to get in, into the uh, rhythm and everything. So I, I think the Ducks got this. Mm -hmm. So... They're hosting the regional. That's a good sign for any team that wants to make a, a, a long tournament run. What do you think the potential of this team is? Do you think they get out of this regional and go to Louisville? I do, yes. Um, 
This will be their fifth or fifth or sixth appearance with Matt Ulmer. The farthest that they made it is the regional semifinal, which isn't that deep in the tournament, but the last the deepest that they made it was, was in 2012, and they were actually the runner-up, and they had a better record now than they did then. So there is a lot of optimism. Um, like I said, those they kind of clicked all at the same time. They All season, each player has talked about gelling, and once they find, find that moment where they all gel together, they're unstoppable, and they showed that when they went 13-0 to end the season. Um, so there is a lot of high optimism with this team, but they haven't made it past the regional semifinal mm-hmm. in a really long time. Yeah, I remember, uh, I think sophomore year, they had a good run too. It was in like the bubble. So hopefully they'll um, be able to build off what the success that they've had this season. Have a good run this year. Thank you for coming on today, Nina. You have a good one. Thanks, you too. Okay, now we're going to move on to women's basketball. The women's basketball team is sitting at 5-1 and one after coming back from a Thanksgiving trip to Portland um, where... They, they, they beat Michigan State 86-78 to 78 in their second game and went toe-to-toe with the number eight team in the country, North Carolina. Ultimately lost, lost that game 85-79, to 79, but put up a good fight. Emma, what did you see from the team through uh, these two games? And now that they're 6-1, and one, uh, a few weeks before Pac-12 play, it's looking like, or 5-1, and one, but looking like a g- good start to the season. Yeah, I'm really excited about how they did against UNC. I think that that obviously was their biggest test so far. Um, They haven't really been playing anyone that's been giving them a good fight, so I was really excited to see that they were actually leading for most of the game, and then things kind of fell apart towards the end of the fourth quarter. But I think that that looks really good um, for their young team. And, I mean, Kelly Graves was talking about how that – the UNC team is just a little bit stronger and has a little bit more experience in some of like those top caliber teams, like the competitiveness. So I think that it looks really good for them going forward. Definitely against Michigan State too, they did end up tying with seven minutes left in the fourth quarter after leading for the entire game. So I think that it's just going to come down to them being able to finish out all of their games. I mean, against Southern Utah, what was that, two weeks ago now, they had the same problem. They're just falling short around halfway through that fourth quarter. So I think it's going to come down to being able to keep up against stronger and bigger teams. Yeah, I think playing in those in those uh, close games is really good for a young group, especially early in the season against good opponents like Michigan State and North Carolina. I think getting that experience, you know, will will bode well for the rest of the season. So one thing that I'm interested in is, like, the scoring from this team – comes from their guards a lot. You know, Tina Papa had 18 against North Carolina, and I think India Rogers had a pretty big game against Michigan State. She had 19 against Michigan State, 5-8 um, from three points. So they got a lot of the scoring from the guards, and then the bigs are kind of, like, helping out around the fringes. What do you think this this team can, can learn? Because it, those veteran guards are leading the scoring, and how do you think that those bigs will kind of complement them as the season goes along? Um, I think that it definitely says a lot, too, that those are the two veteran players that are starting every game. They've started the same lineup for all six games. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how Philly keeps progressing. She had a really good game this past weekend, too. And uh, Kelly Graves has been hot on her since the beginning, and so is Pow Pow. I think that it'll just be obviously like a growing experience. The team is so young, and they have so much potential. I think it'll just need to keep coming as they keep playing games yeah that's filipina che and she's uh from from canada the tall i think she's six foot eight center and one of i think kelly has always talked about how much potential she has um and one thing that i've wanted to see from her and it seems like she's getting a little bit better at it this year it's just finishing around the finishing around the rim what are some things you've seen her improve on so far in this young season 
Um, she's really strong with rebounds because she's so tall. I mean, I saw a picture of all five of them on the court yesterday, and she just towers over the rest of the team. So she's just kind of always there, I feel like. And she's really strong, too. Like, she draws a decent amount of fouls, too. So I think that watching her progress is going to be really exciting just because she doesn't – she didn't have a lot of minutes last year. So everyone's really excited to see where she goes. And I think that she's going to continue. She had two – her second double-double of the season and of her entire career this past weekend. So I think that that's going to be a trend throughout the entire year. Mm-hmm. And a few weeks ago, you talked about Jenna Isai, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and her role, you know, she came off the bench, you said, in one of their um, blowout games, but she, you know, she contributed in that game against North Carolina. I saw that she was in, you know, in crunch time, and she had 15 points. What have you seen from her? She went 6-8 or eight for the field against North Carolina, so she's contributing well. Yeah, she, I feel like, always delivers. I think, again, Southern Utah was the only time that she really didn't even score in double figures, but every single time other than that, she has. And I don't, I really like her. I just like how she always, she comes off the bench and she's always intense right away, like always making impact, like, within minutes of being into the game. So I don't know exactly how she did this weekend other than UNC. I'm not sure how she did against Michigan State, but... I think that she's going to be an exciting one to watch as well. Yeah, kind of a good compliment to their veteran guard because she's a freshman who comes off the bench and plays that position. So we'll see how she kind of matures because she probably won't crack into that starting lineup because of Rodgers and Pow Pow and how they're the veterans on the team. But it'll be interesting to see how this team kind of gels together. And once they get Kennedy Basham back, what do you think that'll be like kind of heading into Pac-12 play? They play Oregon State in a few days, but then don't play another Pac-12 team until the end of December. Um, I think that... That's gonna Oregon State. I think is gonna be a good game. Obviously, just because of the rivalry, I know that that's always kind of exciting. But I think it'll be really interesting when Kennedy comes back because we haven't really seen her play, so I don't know where she's gonna fit into that lineup. Um, I know she played a little bit during that very first game, obviously before she got hurt. But I don't. They're kind of rolling right now, so I don't know how they're going to be able to integrate her back. It might be seamless. It might not. I'm not sure. Well, they'll definitely have to incorporate her back into the rotation because she's talented enough to be in it. But that's all we have today for women's basketball. Thank you for coming on the show, Emma. We're moving along to men's basketball now. You know, they also played in Portland over Thanksgiving. They played in the Phil Knight Invitational. You know, like the like I think the women played in the Legacy. So we got that that little difference mix up there. Anyways, uh, Oregon went one and two in this. They lost a few more guys to injuries, and that's kind of been the story to this season. Tyrone Williams went down to injury. He came back for that last game against Villanova. Uh, and Folly Dante went down to injury. Nate Biddle went down to injury. Uh, I think Kalel Ware even came up limping in the middle of that Michigan State game, but he came back and, and finished it off. I think we got to start with the injuries. Just what have you guys seen from this team, and what are some of their downfalls with these injuries? Oh, real quick, just wanted to, to say that the women's team did also play um, in the Phil Knight Invitational. Both both Oregon men's and women's were in the Invitational. Oregon State was in the Legacy, and both Oregon teams kind of had a disappointing run a little bit. I think there was there was higher expectations. We the, the women's team performed better, certainly, than the men's team, but like you said, the men's team is pretty hurt, and they were able to win that final game against Villanova, but Villanova was a team that struggled in that tournament, too, and in, in general, it was just a weird tournament, but that's what a lot of these beginning-of-the-season tournaments are. They're good chances for teams to figure out exactly where they sit, and unfortunately for Oregon, we still don't really have that because of all these injuries, right? You, you see North Carolina lose to Iowa State and then drop another game later in the tournament, and you go, oh, they're not where they're supposed to be. You see Iowa State 
upset number one North Carolina, and you're like, oh, okay, Iowa State's a solid team. We still don't really know what Oregon is because we're not seeing consistency in playing time with these guys. Yeah, and Coach Allman talked about that in practice today. He was saying that like they're behind schedule because they were behind schedule with the injuries in, in October. They were behind schedule with injuries in November, and now it's almost December, and they're still behind schedule, and Pac-12 play is creeping up. Um, however, I will say um, that at practice, Brennan Rigsby was was looking healthy, and so is Tyron Williams, and uh, and Fale Dante should be coming back pretty soon. So it looks like they're going to get some bodies back. I think Cuisinard and uh, Biddle will be out a little bit longer, but you know th- they're going to get a few guys back. Um, I just want to stick on these games really quickly before we move on to the future. Uh, starting with that Michigan State game, because it was first. You know, the UConn game was a blowout. You can't really take much from that. But in the Michigan State game, you know, they were down to only a few scholarship players. I think it was Richardson, Suarez, and, and uh, Gurrier were playing there in the end after Dante got hurt. And I know where um, he was kind of in and out because he injured himself too. So, you know, when you have just Richardson, uh, Suarez, and Gurrier in there, it's just Richardson's offense was there, but the other two guys, it's just not a lot of offense. But let's talk about Richardson's 28-point performance. I know he's Brady's favorite player to talk about. So why don't we go to that first? You know, what did you see from that performance, Jack? Uh, I saw a dominant performance. It was one of the most welcome sights for this Oregon's uh, men's program I've seen the whole season, really, um, just to see – uh, him somewhat get back into his form uh, was great. Uh, went uh, four for five on three throw, free throws, which has been uh, a point of struggle for us. Also drilled down four out of ten threes, which ain't bad either. And without Richardson, honestly, this game probably would have been a blowout. Yeah, and he had a pretty clutch and one. He he drove through the lane, spin, spin, did it a patented spin, and then hit the layup for the and one. So, you know, he had a good game after some struggling t- ones to start the season. Um, and one thing I think we really need to talk about is Kalel Ware, you know, is basically everything that was promised before the season started. He's very versatile, big, who plays both sides of the ball. Uh, he can shoot the three. He can pass the ball. Um, he, he definitely looks like the most well-rounded player on the team, and I don't even think we've seen the best from him so far. Uh, just, what have you guys seen from Kalel Ware, and where do you think that he can take this team from the center standpoint? And I think it really depends on uh, what happens with uh, the injuries uh, with uh, Biddle and Dante. I know Dante's somewhat healthy. I don't think we know much about Biddle's injury yet. Um, but it does not worry me at all that uh, that at least one of them will miss some time because Kalel has been an absolute stud. Uh, Bleach reports, uh, Jonathan Wasserman had this to say about uh, Kalel. He said he has the potential to stretch the floor, protect the rim, and it should be enough for uh, for Ware to remain in the top 20 discussion all year in that NBA mock draft. And I also think that, um, you know, before before these injuries to Biddle and Dante, Ware hadn't started a game. And, you know, I don't know if that's going to be the case once they, you know, Biddle's fully healthy and once Dante is fully healthy. But if Ware keeps this up, you know, Altman's going to have nothing to do but put him in the starting lineup. Some other things I want to talk about with this basketball team just I, I think Gurrier did actually have a good game against Villanova when they won that game. And I think he does play better when he's at the four. So maybe that's something that Alban will look at because he's been they have really good bigs. So they have to start the bigs. But Gurrier does play better when he's at the four. You know, he had 21 against Villanova in that dub six threes. Um, I think he's better when he's kind of stretching the floor as that um, kind of stretch four guy. Um, but, yeah, I think they need to find offense from him, too. Well, and, and we've talked about this so far on previous segments about 
the Oregon men's team trying to figure out which combinations of dudes work. And I'll try to spin a positive tale on all these injuries. It's given them a chance to see who can play with who. It's giving Altman the, the ability and the need to move guys around, see where they can play, see exactly where the talent lies, and figure it out from there. And I think that that's a big part of Kalel Ware's success so far, too, is because this team is injured, because this team has struggled, he's able to move in another lineup because it's not like they've got a dominant five out there without without Kalel Ware, and it's fine, so he never gets playing time. He's in there. He's getting just as, much act, just as much action as anyone, and I think it speaks numbers to his production on the court. Yeah, and one thing with Waldo, too, like his offense hasn't been there consistently. He's had games where he's taken like 10 shots and other games where he's taken two because it's just not there. Um, but I was talking to him today at practice, and he was saying that, you know, he wants to be that defensive stopper guy. But one thing I think with these injuries is guys need to step up on offense. So, you know, if Oregon wants to stay competitive, moving into Pac-12 play, they got Washington State Thursday, they're going to have to get offense from guys that don't usually contribute. And that means Waldo, who's a defensive guy and who's out there, you know, being scrappy and getting rebounds, he has to be able to shoot too. So guys are going to have to step up where they don't usually step up if Oregon wants to stay competitive without the health. Um, one more segment before we move on. Just thought that we could have a little fun with this. You know, Jack mentioned earlier with the John, Jonathan Wasserman quote that Clellware is a pretty high prospect in this upcoming draft. So I just wanted to bring this up to you guys. Some player comps from the NBA. What do we think about Clellware? And, you know, who who kind of reminds you of Clellware from the NBA that you guys are watching? I can fire a couple uh, comparisons off at you. I would say right now, uh, Miles Turner, I think, is a good comp to him. Uh, or maybe a young Brooke Lopez that has the older Brooke Lopez's ability to shoot. Um, that would be my go-to. Um, like Turner, uh, he can stretch the floor, rebound aggressively, and protect the rim at close to an elite level. I like the Miles Turner one. And uh, I thought one was interesting was Bull Bull. Now that Bull Bull is kind of balling in the NBA, you kind of see the shades of of Clellware and Bull Bull. And it's interesting today, I heard a quote from Paolo Bancaro. He was kind of making fun of Bull Bull, saying that, like, why is everybody tanking for Victor Wembanyama when we got a, you know, versatile 7-2 guy right here in Orlando? So that was pretty interesting to hear. But I, I like the Miles Turner comp a lot. I think that if Kalel can put on some more strength, that the Miles Turner comp is pretty accurate. I also think that Chris Boucher, another Oregon player, um, kind of emulates his shooting. K- Kalel has a, just a great release. It just looks like someone who's been shooting the three for a long time. Boucher's release is a little uh, unconventional, but I think that you know he's someone who c- you could compare the two. I think Jaron Jackson Jr. on the Grizzlies is another good comparison. Jaron went number four in the NBA draft a few years ago, and he really made his acumen on you know blocking shots and shooting the three. So I think that if Kalel can do that, you know he's going to be up there, top ten guy possibly. Brady, you got a comp? Man, I've seen a whole four NBA games this year, so I'm definitely not the guy to ask about this. But I did Google it, and NBA comparison is their NFLDraft.net is comparing him to Jared Allen, saying he's a big, tall, athletic guy, but he could still grow into his build a little bit. And I think that that's definitely something to be said, too, because, yes, Kilo Ware is tall, but I look at him on the floor and I'm like, I'm not convinced he could be bo- he could not be boxed out by anyone. On the floor does look a little passive yeah right uh, i feel that's the uh theme for these super young talented big guys where they come into college or they come into the g league super skinny they have all the tools but they just need to build up the strength to really compete at an nba level 
Okay, so we're going to move on to football. It's our last segment of the day. You know, as usual, we schedule this podcast on Tuesday uh, early evening, and the college football playoff rankings come out right before we started. So we got USC entering into the top four at number four, and we got Michigan moving up a spot. So uh, initial takes on this first time in a long time, I guess since Oregon was number three last year, and that was even before the college football playoff came out, that a top, that a Pac-12 team was in the top four. So what are our takes on USC? They, they beat Notre Dame. They have Utah this, this weekend um, or this Friday. And what do we think about them? Do you think they'll secure that spot in the, in the top four? Being a Pac-12 fan, my gut says no. There's always some kind of end-of-season destruction that happens for nearly every Pac-12 team. I have a hard time believing it won't happen this year too. Yeah, USC is playing Utah on Friday, and Utah was USC's one loss this year. And the Pac-12 has been self-destructive. It's eaten away at itself. But I, I think USC gets this win. And I was thinking that when we still thought Oregon might show up in the Pac-12 championship. I think that USC is the best team in the Pac-12 this year. I think they're going to prove it. And I, I like USC at four in the rankings. A lot of people are talking about it should have been Ohio State. And honestly, I think Ohio State is a better team than USC. I'll go on record as saying that. However, USC is going to have this extra game. They're going to have a chance to win a Pac-12 or a, a Power 5 conference championship. And for me, a team that can win a conference championship should be in over a team that doesn't even get to play for one. 100% agree. And I, I think that uh, you go back to that USC-Utah game. It's a one-point game. They got gashed by Utah's tight end, who's one of the best players, one of the best ball catchers in the, in the uh, nation. Dalton Kincaid had 219 yards in that game. Ooh. This is going to be a great game. That was a great game. This is going to be a great game. And I, I think you may bring up a great point. And it's the same thing with TCU. I think Ohio State is a better team than TCU is, but they ha- but they might have that Power 5 Conference championship. Now, I want to bring up a scenario. If TCU loses, they're still going to have the same record as Ohio State. They're not going to make it? No. Yeah. Nope. TCU's, TCU needs to win out. TCU's going to follow. And um, as far as it goes for USC, too, I think this is going to be an impressive game if they're able to pull it off because they need to be preparing for a road game i was at the pac-12 championship last year when oregon played utah and that stadium was 70 percent red and i don't expect that being different this year if there's going to be a lot of utah fans there and so it's not a true road game it's a neutral setting but so is oregon georgia usc needs to prepare like this is going to be a road game and i think people need to view it like it is one yeah utah definitely goes gets up for those games they want to defend their their title for sure. What do you think this like does for a team that's now possibly moving out of the Pac-12 and now they have the best chance to make it to the college football playoff and represent the Pac-12, but in a few years they're not going to be representing the Pac-12. It's kind of an interesting dichotomy to look at it that way. USC has to be kicking itself. Maybe not from a money standpoint. I understand there's more money in the Big Ten, but from a making the playoff standpoint, kicking itself. UCLA too, especially because after in a, in a couple years, we get the 12-team format where the winner of the Pac-12 is essentially automatically in. That's going to be the easiest path to a playoff game that we see in college football. And USC and UCLA leaving to go play the Big Ten, where now instead of competing with 9-3 and three Oregon, 9-3 and three Wash, or 10-2 and two Washington, now you're competing with Ohio State. And Michigan and Michigan State's down right now, but these these powerhouses in the Big Ten, and it's going to be a whole lot harder to win a sixteen-team conference than it is a twelve. I think it's also interesting that people are just so confident that an Oregon team would make that twelve-team 
CFP where this year they wouldn't, they wouldn't have made it this year based off their record. And it's not, it's not a shoe in every season. So I think that, you know, expanding to 12 teams is great for the, for college football, but I still think that it shouldn't take away from, you know, you have to go hard in every game and that Oregon state game, losing it and missing out on 12 team playoff would have been even more embarrassing than it was this season. Um, So I think that's something that a wrinkle for the future too. True. But I want to say this too. We talked about the importance and kind of how odd these beginning of the year games are. If Oregon didn't play Georgia this year, they would be in the they'd be in the top twelve. That's fair, yeah. Because if that game's never played, you don't get blown out and you don't have that loss on on your record. But and, it was, and it was, and they're sitting but, outside the but, top twelve. But when we look at, the, at what's going to be with this twelve team format, we're going to see games like that go away. Yeah, and we're going to see Oregon sitting, and you're going to see a week one lay up against New Hampshire State University for middle schoolers. And, and it's, it's going to be another layup game, and you're going to see Oregon at 10-2 and two instead of 9-3, and three, and mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about Oregon the same way we're talking about some of these other two law schools like Tennessee and Clemson. Mm-hmm. Moving on from the college football playoff rankings and to the around the Pac-12, USC had a, a big win. You know, Notre Dame had been gaining some momentum in the past few games, and this was a, this was a big game for USC. And it solidified everything that they were kind of working to with hiring Lincoln Riley and bringing in some of those transfers. Uh, you know, credit to them. I'm not a big fan of their of their brand or their team, but credit to them for making it this far and having a pretty good chance to, you know, play it in a college football playoff game and the first time for a Pac-12 school in a long time. What, what did you guys see from around the Pac-12? You know, UCLA has been struggling in these last few weeks. They almost lost to Cal. That came down to the wire. They almost lost to Cal, but that has been the, the theme of Cal's year is almost good enough. I mean, Cal has five one-possession losses this year. It, it, it had to be a, just a, a really frustrating season for the Bears because they're in all these games, and they just can't find success. They, they can't find the closing door. But Cal was not a the layup that a lot of us thought that Cal was going to be this year. They were they were a tough out to get. And, yeah, you say it fell off a little bit, but also they don't have as much to be playing for right now, and it's kind of... Let's, let's be conservative here. Let's keep people healthy. Let's go play in the Holiday Bowl or whatever, wherever they end up. Mm-hmm. Uh, before, I just want to touch on the, the round the pack really quickly. Is there any other points you guys want to talk about? Um, I guess Washington had a – it wasn't – it was kind of annoying from an Oregon fan standpoint to, to see Washington beat Washington State. It was essentially a meaningless game for Washington. Not really because it's good to have a 10-win season if you're, if you're a school they're going to go to a good bowl game. But that game, after losing to Oregon State, you know, was the nail on the coffin for Oregon's chance, you know, playing for a Pac-12 title. But a big win that put up 50 points, 51 points for Washington. Are there any other Pac-12 games that you guys want to touch on before we move on? Yeah, I just want to say something a little bit about the Huskies-Cougars game uh, real quick. That was one of the best quarterback matchups I've seen this year. Uh, and question for you, Aaron, are you finally ready to say that Penix is better than Bo? Yeah, he's better than Bo. Yeah, okay. Um, for our listeners, uh, we have been having an active uh, uh, discussion on uh, who is better between the two. And uh, Cameron Ward also showed out uh, 33, 52, 322, two touchdowns. Bro, Very Cameron possible. Ward's been a dog. He yeah. was really good against Oregon. Yeah, he's a stud. Well, moving on from that, this is. You know, a lot of things are happening with Oregon after this Oregon State game, and we'll get to that game in a second. But a few of the thoughts from that loss, um, the first one, probably the biggest one, Oregon's offensive coordinator, Kenny Kenny Dillingham, uh, took the job at Arizona State and had his inaugural press conference the other day. 
it, it was a pretty interesting departure. Um, it, the rumors had been flying around the last week that Dillingham was going to take this position of, of kind of a school that's <laughs> been messy to say the least over the last year. And after Herm Edwards went out the door, they just went in a different direction with a young guy who is going to call some fun plays, but I don't think Kenny Dillingham is ready for this job. And I think he's got a long, you know, tough road ahead of him. He's not inheriting a program like Lanning did that has had success, consistent success for a decade. He's hiring a, a program that's messy and scandalous. And I, I don't know if he's ready for it at 30, 33 years old or however young he is. So we'll see how he fares there. What do you guys think about ASU hiring Kenny Dillingham? Uh, yeah, I'm a little concerned for him. I'm sure there's going to be some uh, some recruiting uh, sanctions that carries over from Her- Herm Edwards' uh, time at ASU that will affect Dillingham. Uh, actually, um, when I was writing a piece for um, Colorado Week earlier, I was listing their head coaching candidates, and I actually listed Dillingham as a potential guy that Colorado could hire. ASU hires him. I think it's a good hire, but it is risky. The hire makes a lot of sense. He, he of course, was an alumni of Arizona State. Dillingham went there, and th- he was an exciting offensive coordinator to watch this year, and Arizona State has some exciting pieces on offense. They've been able to score. Their defense just hasn't been up to par. And the difference you mentioned between inheriting a program like Oregon and going to a lesser program like ASU is that takes some of the expectation off and it gives him a longer leash. So I think with that longer leash of, hey, we don't need to be 10-2 and two this year. We need to not be 4-7. and seven. But the gap, he's going to have more time to make that adjustment and to settle into his new role than Lanning did with Oregon because ASU is down right now. And I think it was a great hire. I think the timing of it was extremely frustrating for Oregon fans because it came, what, 20 minutes after one of the most embarrassing losses in recent history but it it made sense, and when the rumors were flying, I don't think a lot of people were saying, "Nah, that that, that that's not gonna happen." Yeah. So I don't I don't think people were surprised, but it still stings a little bit. It's just interesting, like football coaches have been getting younger, younger, and younger as the years have gone along. You've seen it all across the NFL and uh, you know collegiate football too. So Dillingham is you know one of the younger. He might be the youngest coach. I don't know. I don't have that on tap, but he's one of the younger coaches, to thirty two or thirty three years old. Yeah, like you said, like ASU is not looking to win right now. I don't think they can be. Um, I think if Dillingham gets into a bowl game in his first year there, it would be a successful season for them. Uh, that, that's all we have on, on that, Matt. I don't really want to linger on that. It was Yeah, I agree. Like he kind of was, it was a little weird how he seemed unfazed in their press conference a, a week after, or a day after a huge loss to Oregon State. But it is what it is. Um, let's move on to that game. So... Oregon was leading 31 to 10 with three minutes and 38 seconds remaining. And in the third quarter, in the, in the third quarter. Thank you. And uh, I think we all know how the rest of the game unfolded. They, they kind of imploded within themselves. Uh, muffed snap of a punt that led to a touchdown going for it on fourth down from the 28 yard line that led to another touchdown. Uh, and a, a kickoff return that went 48 yards and a, plus a face mask penalty face mask penalty that led to a touchdown and Oregon saw themselves losing 38 34 all of a sudden what what did you guys see from this game and kind of how do you think the implosion happened and what are the ramifications of it uh, well right now I'm heartbroken um, I think most of the blame on this game has to go on Dan Lanning some of those decisions to go for it on fourth down 
we're on our 28 or 29 yard line. I'm sorry, that's stupid, Dan. We we can't uh, we can't be doing that. O and five on fourth down. O and five. What's more surprising than the zero is the five. There is a reason that punting has become the standard on fourth down, because it works, because it's less risky, but it's a little bit safer, for sure. Give the ball away, especially with, with it led to these. And understand that the punting game was not good, and the punting game set up Oregon State in, in great fielding position. But one of those fourth downs was fourth and fourteen. Yeah. What in the world? And especially on that fourth and fourteen, it was I believe it was like third and four. False start penalty. Now it's third and nine. Then he takes a sack. Now it's fourth and 14. The last three things had not gone your way. The odds were clearly against you. Momentum was not on your side. Why are we trying to go for it on fourth and 14? It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. And especially going for it, the, the one that, that, drove me, that drove me just up the wall was you're up by three. You're in your own territory. Again, you don't have the momentum on your side. And you're going for a fourth and two with a quarterback that we know is struggling to run right now in a run game that really struggled against the Beavers. Yeah. You hadn't been able to run the ball well all game. Why are we trying it here? Why, why are, are we going to allow three state touchdown drives or whatever it was and then say, yeah, you know what? Let's give them a chance to put the ball right back in field goal range while we're clinging to this thin lead that we watched disappear. Yeah, and Bonix made an awful read on that play too. He definitely should have handed it off to the running back. The the strong side linebacker didn't move his feet at all and act like he was going into that hole. But it, it seemed like the running game had finally met, met its match. And I think we kind of knew that Oregon State is maybe you know up there with any Utah's defensive line was was good. It wasn't great, but Oregon State's up there with the defensive lines that Oregon has faced this season. And it showed with the under four carry for both running backs. And um, Oregon State, you know, even when they were losing by 21 points, the whole game, they won the battle in the trenches. In the first half, it was their offensive line setting the – I mean, it was their defensive line setting the tone. In the second half, it was their their offensive line and the running game just going crazy. We we weren't able to talk to it because we didn't do a segment after the Utah game, but I wanted to bring it up then, and it it ended up being relevant against the Beavers too. It is remarkable. What happens to this offense when you take away Bo Nix's ability to run? Because everybody in that stadium knew that Bo Nix wasn't going anywhere. Everyone knew he wasn't running. And because of that, they were able to single in on Irvine or whoever else was in the backfield, knowing that they're going to be the primary ball carrier. And they were swallowed up in the trenches, like you said, all game long. When Bo Nix doesn't have the threat for running, Oregon's run game went out the window. But we're still trying it on fourth down. You know, you would think once you start, like, running headfirst into a wall, eventually, like, you stop trying to get through that wall. But we did not stop. I also think, like, the inventive play calling the whole season has got has got Oregon to a point where, you know, they're before the losses to Washington, before the loss to Oregon State, in a, in a place to make the college football playoff. And then when it comes down to it, the, college, the, the Pac-12 championship berth on the line, they go, I form, I form, I form three plays in a row and they don't get a yard at all. And then they you know, have one chance at it and don't get it. That was also interesting to me too. And one other concept that I have always hated and I don't understand is what, like what is a goal line running back? That's the third best running back on the team out there on three most important plays of the game. I, I just don't understand that at all. Right. And, and especially when you mix it with, well, Oregon's not able to run right now. 
So, but surely the run defense is stepping up on the other side, right? No, it was the complete opposite for the Beavers. Ben Goldbrunson had 60 passing yards. He had six he completed two interceptions. He completed, he attempted 13 passes and beat the number nine team in the nation. That cannot happen. 268 rushing yards the Beavers had. And it's not like it was their original game plan because they started the game pass heavy. Goldbrunson threw those two interceptions, so they said, okay, passing isn't working right now. Let's rely, let, or let's switch to the run game because, out of desperation because the pass game wasn't working. And then they found, hey, running's, running's working. Let's keep doing it. Let's keep doing it. Let's keep doing it. I'm sitting there at the game with my dad, and I'm looking at him going, why would you even attempt another pass in this game if every single rush is going to be six yards, seven yards, four yards? I mean, the, the Beavers averaged 6.2 yards a carry. Something's got to give. Their last pass of the game came with eight minutes and 24 seconds left to go in the third quarter. Right. And, and, so, and so at that point, it's predictable. At that point, everybody in the stadium knows the Beavers are running. Everybody on the Ducks sideline should know the Beavers are running. Everybody in the Ducks secondary should know the Beavers are running. And they're still at gaining six yards of play. Uh, why were Tosh and Dan not stacking the box damn near every play in the second half? I just don't get it. Yeah. All right, well, we've touched on the game uh, itself. Emma, you know, she went and covered the game for the Emerald. Emma, what was that experience being like at, you know, Reeser Stadium in Corvallis? And this was your first away coverage. Um, it was actually really cool. Outcome aside, it was a really cool experience. It felt like kind of surreal. I got lost more times than I can count. But Reeser being under construction was super annoying. But, I mean, being I grew up in Oregon, so watching the Civil War has always been such a big deal. And, like, that's, like, a huge thing in the state. So I feel like watching it, not only being there, but then in this perspective was, I feel like, it was super cool. i obviously very disappointed by the outcome, but it was almost like I didn't even have time to, like, feel it like a fan. Because it was just like, okay, on to the next. And then mm-hmm. it was like, Bo Nix literally so sad walking off the field. And then 20 minutes later, then Dillingham is like, I'm going to leave. And then... It was it was a really interesting like chain of events, but it was very exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one thing I found interesting. It's really tough to like kind of transition between being a fan when I don't go and cover the games and then when I go and cover the games. And it's an interesting transition. I have a question. So with the kind of half uh, stands, was it as loud as the announcers were making it seem? Okay. It was insanely loud. I was talking to, I know a lot of people go to Oregon State, so I was talking to them before the game. I was like, how is it with it being half empty? And they were like, don't worry, like the sound will bounce. And I was like, okay, whatever. And then we get in the press box, and every time they do their tail slap or their chainsaw noise on third down, the entire box like literally rumbled because the speakers were like right above it. And it was so much louder than I expected. And like sitting, being a fan at that game, I can see where it look really weird but from my perspective I was looking at an entire full half stadium so I didn't even really notice that it was uh, no one was there Mm -hmm. yeah it's really it's really interesting uh I I don't know when it'll be done but Oregon State's been a program that's been building for a little while and this was kind of the culmination of what they've been building and we'll see where it goes but they can't be taken lightly from now on it used to be like the little brother but they're they're just not but let's move on from that. I think before the season, if we had thought that this team would go nine and three, it would not be that, you know, it, it would be pretty reasonable. This was a team that was kind of looked at to be in a retooling year. That was a lot of kind of the feel around the team before the season started. And after they, they broke off an eight game winning streak, it looked like this team could make a run at you know a college football playoff. So I'm just curious, like, what are your guys' holistic thoughts on this whole season? Uh, ending nine and three, probably going to go to like the holiday or Alamo Bowl and what do we think the season ended up as? 
We'll start with what you said about the the Ducks finishing nine and three. I think if you told a lot of Oregon fans, journalists, reporters, anybody that follows this team, Oregon's going to finish nine and three this year. They'll go, yeah, sure, I'll take it for sure. So the season as a whole was by no means a failure, but losing to your two biggest rivals, two out of three weeks, and just a collapse in really both those games. They led in both of them. It was the ending of the season just leaves a sour taste in your mouth. And the, the ending was a disaster. And it can't really, you can't help but wonder how much of that is due to an offensive coordinator being on his way out the door. Right. Be- because the play calling in those last two games, and I understand that Bo Nix was hurt, and so you had to, you couldn't be creative with him like you'd been created with him, creative with him the rest of the year. But in those last two games, the play calling was so bland, so stagnant, so predictable. And it really just makes you go, what could this team have been if it had people that were fully committed for the entire year, people that weren't that weren't hurt, and a little bit of chemistry because they did this all in their first year playing together. The year by no means is a failure. But the I, end was one of the worst collapses I've seen to an Oregon season in a long time. Okay, I think it's interesting how you say, like, the play calling was really questionable or bland when Bo got hurt because I feel like it says a lot about like what that offensive coordinator could have done for the team because not every quarterback runs like Bo is special because he's a strong runner so like yeah he's gonna go now run in a whole new team but like I feel like when you're presented with a challenge and you don't come up with something more creative it says a lot about your potential so I think it'll be really interesting to see who steps into that new position and then dealing him at his new job. Overall, I'm pretty satisfied with this season, um, but what really upsets me is the way we lost. You know, besides the George game, really we should be undefeated. And it's sad, you know, as a senior, me and Aaron last year's here, we should have made the college football playoffs, but uh, because of a couple late game errors, we're not going to. Um, but that's okay. It's the same thing. Not exactly because Utah blew Oregon out, but it's similar to last year. Kind of a collapse against teams when they play against teams that are at a similar level than they are um, and that aren't the Stanfords and the Colorados and the Cows of the world, it becomes struggle when it matters most. Yeah, what's up, Brady? Well, I was going to say, there, are, there were those struggle teams, and at the beginning of the year, it looked like Oregon was going to be one of those struggle teams. It was similar, like we said, if you told us at the beginning of the season that, they end, that the Ducks finish 9-3, and three, I'll take it. But if you told me at the, after the end of the Georgia game that the Ducks finish 9-3, and three, I'm going, really? How? And then you tell me it's losses to Washington and Oregon State in games you were leading. And I go, no. But from a grand scheme of things, the progression of this team before the decline at the end, the, the rise before the fall, was impressive and gave a lot of hope for this team and where it can be going forward. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about it going forward. So we're getting good at these transitions, guys, now that we've been doing this for 10 weeks. But going forward, they lost consecutive days Dante Thornton and seven McGee or not sorry Dante Thornton and Byron Carwell they lost seven McGee a few weeks ago so it's three you know not really important but three contributing uh skill position players I don't think that they're going to have kind of the exodus they had at the end of last season because they're not going to move on from a coach uh, hopefully um but you know what do you think this team is moving forward I think that Dante Dowdwell a a, a recruit is going to come in and kind of replace what Cardwell 
I mean, Carwell was hurt for most of the season, but it'll be a three, three man running back room with Whittington and Irving. I don't think they go anywhere. Um, and the wide receiver room is going to get some new guys. And I think Coda has another year of eligibility. I don't know if he'll use it. Um, same thing with, with Nick. So there's going to be some change in this team, but it still should be very talented. And I think it'll be interesting to watch what Bo Nick's decision is moving forward. Sure. So, so I want to ask something because I, I truly don't know. Uh, Dante Moore, high quality recruit coming in to play five star, five star. Is he coming next year? Or is he coming the year after? He's coming next year. Next okay. Year, yeah. Well, I would not mind seeing him have a year met as, as a mentee. Right. Watch I agree. Someone, whether that be Knicks or someone else, but if Knicks ends up going to the draft or doesn't come back for another year, Oregon looks like a prime candidate for someone to do what Bo Nix just did. Um, I know one of the quarterbacks from Texas is transferring in Hudson Card. Yeah, and there'll be a handful of other um, transfer transfer quarterbacks too. But isn't Oregon appealing to see what Bo Nix came and did in just one season? If I'm looking for one more year of eligibility. I'm looking at a program like Oregon, and if I can go do what Bo Nix just did, continue to keep this team good, and give Dante Moore a year to learn the program, that's really enticing for me, and that's exciting for Oregon. I, personally, maybe he's great. Maybe he's the greatest quarterback we've ever seen, but I'm not sure I have a whole lot of interest in seeing Dante Moore being thrown straight into the Pac-12. No, I totally agree. I think that, you know, you, you said it best. Like, Bo Nix probably raised his stock from undrafted to his second or third day draft pick. And he completely changed the narrative of the transfer portal. Mm-hmm. We really hadn't seen a guy transfer to a place for one year and be great and then increase his draft stock the way he did. Now, it, it just so happens that a couple other guys have done that this year. Uh, Penix is a great example of that, too. But... We, that hadn't been a thing that we'd seen before. And so for Bo Nix to change the narrative of the transfer portal and have Oregon be the subject of that change, I think it says really, really good things for recruits, transfers, whatever, looking to come be a duck for their fo- collegiate football career. Yeah, I think best case scenario for the Ducks is Nick's you know, uses that that last year of eligibility, kind of pulls a Matt Barkley and chooses running it back to the team over his NFL career. But if he goes to the draft, he's going to be a second-day draft pick. And... I think for Oregon, if Dante Moore can learn behind Knicks, a guy who is mobile and a guy who's going to be healthy next year and can run, that's the type of quarterback that Dante Moore is too. And I think that he'll learn very well behind Bo Nix. And, and I think that Bo Nix's injury actually increases his odds that he does come back for another year of eligibility because as high as his draft stock was going, I can't imagine it did anything but fall over these last two weeks, seeing him not able to run the ball. Now, don't, no, don't get me wrong, he still looked good passing. I mean, he had... 327 yards and two touchdowns, but it really wasn't accurate when he couldn't plant off that back foot. So that draft stock went down, and and I'm sure scouts are looking at, what if he can't come back to what he was? And I I don't know where his draft stock currently sits, but if it's not a first five-ish round pick, I'm definitely considering coming Mm -hmm. back to Oregon one more year, showing that, hey, I can still run, I can still do this, I can still be a comeback player. Mm -hmm. The uh, pressure will really be on uh, Dan Landing and his staff to uh, really develop some of these young offensive weapons after the departures of Seven McGee, uh, Dante Thornton, Byron Cardwell. We'll see um, how they can develop the young stars and uh, see how they improve the offense. I'm more curious to see how they can develop some of these defensive stars because remember coming into the coming into the season, everyone was excited on oh Noah Sewell's back, oh Justin Flo is back, all these guys. 
Who was the dominant force on the Ducks defense this year? And don't say Christian Gonzalez because he's because he isn't going to be here. Well, next Noah's year. going to leave too. Right. So who who's who's the returner on defense next maybe year? Byron that, who, maybe Byron Addison. Who's the returner that you're excited about on the defense next year? Uh, how, what's Dorless's uh, class? I don't no, know. Dorless are you really that excited about him? And Jeffrey yeah. Bossa is probably going to step up and replace Noah Sewell, and he had his issues too. So right. I, that's a good so point. I need to how see some of, some of these stand arounds. I don't. I don't know, but 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 the fact that there wasn't an a, an immediate. Oh, I'm really excited to see this guy come back next year. Says a lot about this mm-hmm. defense, especially when this Oregon defense was advertised as a national championship defense because they had a bunch of pieces already, and then they brought in Dan Lanning. So I need to see more production from the defensive side of the football in the off season more than I do the offensive side because there's going to yeah. be a lot of change whether with with transfers with recruits and all that on the offensive side of the ball. I need to see hey. Who are the guys that are staying on defense, especially at linebacker, and how are they going to get better? Mm-hmm. I have a question. So after two people have announced that they're transferring after this year, I saw something on Twitter today, and I wanted to like see what you guys think. Someone said that Oregon is a stepping stone program and that there are four, I can't remember exactly who it was, but four programs that are never going to be that. So what do you guys think? They've always been looked at as a co- for coaches and for players. I, I get it, but I think that's a good point. But – Brady just brought up the point with Bo Nix. Bo Nix used Auburn as a stepping stone program and now made his name at Oregon. So I think most programs that aren't Georgia, Alabama, and those top-tier programs are stepping stones. Like, the transfer portal is used very heavily now, so that's just how it is in college football. Oregon will be a a stepping stone program until USC and UCLA leave the Pac-12. When Oregon establishes itself as the top dog in the Pac-12, it will stop being a stepping stone program, which I think it's still one of the higher stepper, stepping stones. It's it's not a Arizona State. It, it, it's towards the top. But as long as there are better teams, better programs, more historic programs in the Pac-12, Oregon will continue to be a stepping stone. But once Oregon establishes itself as the top dog, I see Oregon as a final destination for a lot of recruits and transfers. Right, and some uh, recent examples of uh, coaches that have used Oregon as a stepping stone, obviously uh, Chip Kelly, uh, Kenny Dillingham, Mario Cristobal, Willie Taggart, uh, who left after a year. Um, Probably soon to be more also. I mean, Lanning brought in a young staff that's going to find jobs elsewhere, so it's definitely... You know, use that way, and it's not a bad thing, but it's just it is what it is, and we'll see how it works out moving forward. There's going to be a lot of new faces here at Oregon next year. We'll see what bowl game Oregon gets into in the in the near future, and we'll see if USC solidifies in, themselves in the college football playoff. But thank you guys for listening today, and we'll get back to you next week.